Acts chapter 23. I'm going to read the whole section, even though we're just preaching on verses 6 through 10, beginning at verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And God said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. Amen. Father, we come to your word and it is our desire to handle your word with fear and with trembling, uh, to uh, not only understand it, but to live it out. And I pray that your anointing, your grace would be with us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have a book written by Thomas, President Thomas Jefferson titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And basically what he did is he got a number of Bibles and he just started cutting out uh, different sections of the New Testament and he pasted them together. And he had a, basically what originally was a first Reader's Digest condensed New Testament. <laughs> but when you read through it, you realize he's very deliberate in the things that he left out. He starts without the angels and the virgin birth, and he ends without the resurrection and the angels back then. And in between, he very deliberately leaves out any miracles, any reference to the divinity of Jesus, uh, any angels, anything supernatural, he completely leaves out. And some conservatives have tried to defend him and say, well, he was just trying to get the, the moral principles. But actually, I found a letter that he wrote to uh, one of his uh, friends, and uh, he said quite different. William Short, he was writing to, and he said, These things are rubbish and the dung hell of superstition in which the diamonds of Christ's real words lie hidden. So he re 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 thought that divinity, any supernatural angels, miracles, all of those things, that is just rubbish. So he was basically a liberal Sadducee when it came to religion, and he was a conservative Pharisee when it came to politics. It was a very strange mix. And yet, he became a co-belligerent with Christians in trying to oppose uh, big government. Uh, there was enough commonality, things that he loved from the Bible, and he even said, I got these things from the Bible, that he was aggressively pursuing, that he was able to be a co-belligerent uh, with the Christians, even Christians who had opposed his running for office because he wasn't a Christian himself. Uh, and I think there's a parallel in this passage, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were opposed to 
uh, Paul, but Paul brings at least some of the Pharisees to the place where they can become co-belligerents against the tyranny of Ananias and the tyranny of the, the Sadducees. Uh, last Sunday, somebody asked me, which is worse, uh, Roman Catholics or liberal Protestants? And I instantly responded, I thought Roman Catholics were a lot better in terms of social issues because we share so much more in common with them than we do with liberal Protestants. And I'd rather not have to pick because they both have a lot of problems. Uh, but the point is, when it comes to co-belligerency, you're looking at things that, that you do have in common or at least a common enemy that you are opposing. Even Ernie Chambers... Uh, on occasion, has defended the right thing, as in the case with the uh, the Faith Baptist uh, fiasco in in um, in um, what is it Lewis Louisville? That's the name of the town. And they certainly have been co-belligerents in opposing abortion. And there's some other things like that. So let me define a co-belligerent. A co-belligerent is a person who is different enough from you that you really can't covenant with him. But you can join him in opposing some evil, uh, some critically important thing that you both believe needs to be opposed. Uh, you're in agreement in your opposition to something. Uh, you've got some common enemy. And we're going to start with the co-belligerent Jews in verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, the, uh, Paul knows that the Sadducees hate this most central doctrine of what Paul had been preaching, and he knows he can pit the, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. Uh, he, in his pre-Christ days, had served for quite a number of years probably on the Sanhedrin. We know that. I won't get into that from other passages and so he knows this is a very fragile coalition uh, of Pharisees and Sadducees who are trying to rule together. It's sort of like what goes on up in Canada. They've got a different uh, system, a parliamentary system, where you can have, some people call it the multi-party system. You can have five, six, ten, as many parties as you want running. And that means sometimes you know, don't have anybody that's a majority and so what they do is they form coalition governments where two or three uh, parties will get together and they'll say, I know we don't agree with each other and everything, but here's some things that we have in common and we certainly have a common enemy out there. So they form a very fragile coalition that can fall apart any time. Uh, for example, if, some, if you tick off part of your coalition with some of the things that you're doing as the prime minister, well, they just have a vote of no confidence and you have to have another election. And so there's a lot of pressure. It, it can fall apart very, very, uh, very quickly. That's sort of what's going on here. Paul is throwing something into the mix to get them to have a vote of no confidence, is what they call it up in Canada. And if that vote uh, does not carry, uh, then, then they have to have another, uh, another election. And the way he does it is a very touchy issue, the resurrection. Verse 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. They saw angels as being spirits, not having bodies. So no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. But there were enough doctrines that the Pharisees, these unbelieving Pharisees held in common with Paul that he could appeal to them. In fact, we know from early church that it was a lot easier to win Pharisees to the faith than it was to win Sadducees to the faith. In fact, um, let me just read you from 
a footnote a little bit later on, I. Howard Marshall in his commentary says, what Paul was now in effect claiming was that one could be a Christian while accepting the Pharisees' point of view, or more precisely, that Pharisaic Judaism found its fulfillment in Christianity. The Sadducean religion, however, needed a fundamental change in its presuppositions before it could become a Christian. And I think that this can help inform our politics and our dealings with unbelievers in the social sphere. Not in the church, but we're talking about out there in the, the, the social sphere. We've got to understand our audience. Uh, what are the weak points in their anti-Christian alliance? Uh, can they be divided so that their opposition is not so formidable? Uh, are there any issues in which they might be willing to co-sponsor a bill on some conservative issue? And is it okay uh, for uh, you know us to get together in opposing abortion? I don't see any reason why there would not uh, why there would be a problem in that. Is it okay for them to support us on a political cause? See, that's not covenanting together with unbelievers. Scripture makes it very clear. You may not covenant with unbelievers. This is being co-belligerents. You've got a common enemy and you're saying, okay, yeah, we can agree to oppose uh, this particular person even though we're coming from it, uh, at it from different perspectives. Now, let's read verse 6 again. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, this has puzzled a lot of people. If you read through much literature on this, you'll see a lot of different opinions. With the Pharisees being so hostile to Jesus, how in the world can Paul say, I am a Pharisee? In fact, Paul has just recently, actually it was a few years ago, uh, written the book of Galatians in which he just royally attacks the Pharisees uh, for their legalistic additions to the Scripture. So how can he say that he's a Pharisee? He's been really bombarding them and hitting them. And so some people think Paul is lying here. He's, he's fearful and he's trying to figure out some way to get out of this and he's just told a little white lie. John Calvin himself says, that was not far from lying. Now, as attractive as that is to try to figure out what, how do we reconcile this, what's going on here, I just don't think that it will work. We already saw last week that Paul was speaking prophetically right words. And Jesus had prophesied, uh, had told them, don't even worry. When you get called before kings and before courts, don't even think ahead of time what you're going to speak. I'm going to give you the words to speak. Uh, secondly, we saw that in chapter 24, verse 20, Paul, looking back on this event, claims he had said nothing wrong. He didn't say anything wrong by claiming that he was a Pharisee. In verse 21, he reaffirms that what he was being tried over was indeed the, the resurrection. So if he's lying in this chapter, he's lying in chapter 24, and then in chapter 26 he reaffirms uh, his being a Pharisee on this uh, issue. And uh, it's interesting that in the early church, the Pharisees continued to be called Pharisees even after they were converted. In Acts 15, uh, some of the Pharisees who had become Christians uh, they had to change some of their theology because Paul says you're wrong on this, but they continued to be called believing Pharisees. By chapter 21, verse 20, James claims that there were thousands of such pious, law-abiding Jews, and various commentators say these must be the believing Pharisees that they are talking about. So obviously there's enough doctrinal similarity between the Pharisees and the Christians 
that Paul can still honestly call himself a Pharisee, at least on the doctrine of the resurrection, if not on other issues. Uh, obviously, he was not a Pharisee on the law, because, uh, boy, does he go after them on that. And Jesus went after them on that as well, on all of their additions. But we're just talking about their interpretation of Moses and the prophets. Now, in the political um, sphere... It would be sort of like a Republican who agrees with the basic party platform just being irritated that, uh, you know, Republicans have drifted so far away from the platform and, um, uh, you know, that they've become liberal. But he's in trouble with the Democrats. The Democrats are trying to discipline him. So he cries out in the Congress and he says, I am a Republican and the son of a Republican, and I'm getting hung out to dry by these Democrats here simply because I'm holding to historic Republican principles. Uh, I shouldn't be disciplined over holding to what is still in the party platform. I mean, that's really the parallel of what's going on here. Now, if a person said that, you couldn't accuse him of saying, oh, you're just like McCain. Now, this guy might be a real conservative who's calling himself a Republican and disagree with McCain and a lot of other Republicans. And I think that's what's happening here. Paul had a lot of disagreements with the Pharisees, but if you trace some of their interpretations going back 200 years, you will see that he had a lot in common with them. And specifically on the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, he agreed. Now, Jesus seems to indicate that there's even more than the resurrection on this that uh, Pharisees had in common with him. He said this, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that is concerning Moses, you could add in there, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. And then he goes on to talk about how they contradict themselves by adding all of these traditions and all of the things that he says, just ignore that. When they're teaching Moses, yeah, you can follow that. Now, I don't think if there were not some similarities between the Pharisaic doctrines and, and what Christians teach, I don't see how Jesus could say that. So I don't think we should criticize for Paul for saying that he was a Pharisee. He's received a lot of criticism in the literature in the last 50 years. Now, there's one more troubling phrase in verse 6 that some people have a hard time believing. It's the phrase where Paul says, Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And again, I've got some books in my library that say, that's just a flat-out lie. There's no way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were criticizing him over the, the resurrection. They were criticizing him because he was following Jesus and claiming Jesus was the Messiah. It has nothing to do with the resurrection. Now, we're going to be seeing in a moment, if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, then you have to reject the first century uh, resurrection, which completely blows the Pharisaic tradition of resurrection completely out of the water. He's using a presuppositional apologetic here that I think was very uh, powerful. He's forcing the Pharisees to be consistent uh, with their theology. Who knows? Maybe even some people came to a, 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 a conversion from this. But far from being consistent, I believe he was using a brilliant presuppositional apologetic. So back to our question, was Paul really being called in question over the resurrection? I have to say a resounding yes for three reasons. Let me list those. First, the resurrection is indeed at the heart of every speech of all of the apostles, but every speech of Paul and every defense that he gives in this book. And you can see it in Acts 13, 17, 23, 24, 26. In Acts 17, 18, Paul is criticized, quote, 
because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. In Acts 24:21, Paul repeats the assertion he makes in this chapter concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged by you this day. Okay, that's the second time he said that. Uh, when Paul's defending himself in Acts 26, he asks Herod Agrippa, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Okay, so that really is at the heart of his defense all the way through here. And the people who deny it, at least in my opinion, the people who deny it, I think, are blinded by their eschatology because Paul is appealing to the post-millennial eschatology of the Pharisees. Are you curious yet? <laughs> I'm really excited about this uh, passage, even though you're going to have to put your thinking caps on and uh, really concentrate to follow uh, the argument uh, that we're going to go through. I think you'll see this is a very central passage. Okay, there's a second reason why Paul tied Jewish hope and resurrection together, and he did so very, very accurately. Jewish interpretation, and you've got a chart you can look at in your outline there. Jewish interpretation said that the first 2,000 years of history from Adam until Abraham was an age that they called the age of void. Then the next 2,000 years from Abraham up until the first century A.D. was the age of Torah, of the law. And that means that on a standard, any standard Pharisaic interpretation, it would mean that the age of Torah would end sometime in the first century A.D. Now that means they shouldn't be arguing with Paul uh, so strongly when he says that Torah, that, that, that the ceremonial law was going to be done away with. He, they shouldn't be arguing with Paul about the Messiah having come or the resurrection having happened. There was incredible messianic expectations in the 200 years leading up to the time uh, of Jesus, especially, this is true amongst all of the Jewish interpretations, especially the Pharisees, and only the Sadducees were the ones who bucked uh, this tradition. Now here's an interesting side note. On their interpretation, the next 2,000 years would be the age of the Messiah, and which, by the way, would lead us to up to approximately where we are living uh, today. And just to complete their 7,000-year picture that I've um, diagrammed for you there, the Pharisees said there's going to be one more 1,000-year period, and that is the period when Messiah's teachings are going to be followed by the whole world. Uh, if the Pharisees are right on their eschatology, that means that we are either living in the time of the, you know, it's, it's just it's already happened or it's soon to happen, the 6,000th anniversary of uh, the creation. And um, based on my calculations, I don't think my calculations can be off by more than 70 years. I don't think it could be the 6,000th anniversary could be anywhere beyond 2070, but likely it's already happened. Now, is there sabbatic, um, you know, way that they put out history? Is it true? I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. Uh, I know the resurrection, the, their doctrine of the resurrection here has to be true because Paul identifies himself with it. But I just find it uh, very, very interesting. I'm open to that, but I'm open to the fact there could be 100,000 more years of, of history. I'm not really... Sure on that, but at the very least, the Pharisees should have seen that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of their eschatology because the Messianic age was supposed to start 4,000 years after creation. 
So this was a very powerful apologetic that early Christians were using. Third thing that the Pharisees said would happen was that there would be a resurrection of many people at the beginning of the Messianic age. There would be a resurrection that would happen there. And so when Paul preaches about the resurrection of Jesus and the Old Testament saints who rose with uh, Jesus, this would have struck the Pharisees like a ton of bricks that they had been blind to the fact their Messiah has already come, that Jesus was the fulfillment. And so it's no wonder that so many Pharisees came to Christ in the first century. And it's no wonder Paul makes uh, the resurrection such a central doctrine in his apologetics. Now, the reason it doesn't strike us and hit us quite so forcefully is a lot of um, 21st century Christians don't realize that a resurrection's already happened in the first century. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 27. We're going to flip through a few verses, but Matthew 27 gives a snapshot of what happens from over a three-day span from the crucifixion uh, until the resurrection. And uh, let's read verses 51 through 53. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. None of those people rose out of the graves till after Christ was raised. Now, the graves were opened right at the time of Christ's death. They're all split open. But then they come out of the graves on the day of resurrection. Now, this was predicted many times in the Old Testament. For example, Job said testified very confidently that his body was going to rise at the time of Messiah. That's Job 19, 25 through 27. Uh, In fact, why don't you turn with me to some of these passages. Turn to Hosea 6. And uh, we're going to give some scriptures that the Pharisees would have used to prove a resurrection at the time of the Messiah. And to reject the resurrection of Jesus was to reject any resurrection hope that the Pharisees had hoped in it would totally destroy their system. So he's not, con- uh, he's not compromising at all here. He's being very controversial and he's giving a very central facet of Christianity. Okay, Hosea 6, if you can't find it, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. He begins in the first two verses describing the resurrection. Then verse 3 talks about the kingdom and all of these passages do that. Okay, verses 1 and 2. Come, Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, there's a lot of commentaries uh, say that this verse is the one that Paul had in mind when he says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. Well... There's only two possible places you could look in the Old Testament for a third-day resurrection. Jonah, which is in symbolic form, and this passage here. So they say, in some way, this must be a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Well, it is, but there's a lot of people that rise with him. He's not the only one. Turn to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. And this is a passage where Christ is prophetically speaking. And he includes the resurrection of others with his own at the time of the kingdom. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, 
Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So this is a resurrection of Christ's body and many people with Him. Jesus speaking says, Together with my dead body they shall arise. Now the first resurrection is called in the New Testament a first fruits. If you understand all of the festivals, at the time of first fruits, they didn't just offer up to God one little piece of grain. They offered up a whole sheaf of grain. It's not the whole harvest, but it's a, a sheaf of grain. There's quite a few grains that are offered up to the Lord. It's called first fruits because it guarantees there's going to be a general harvest at the end of history. Okay, turn with me to Daniel 12. Daniel 12 and verse 2. Now, I did a, a series of sermons at uh, Trinity uh, Press a number of years ago. I'm just going to give you a very basic background on this. But in chapter 11, that's just an incredible, incredible chapter. There is over 100 detailed prophecies that are going in sequence, just decade after decade, from verse 1, where it's talking about Cyrus, all the way up to verse 45, where it's talking about the death of Herod the Great. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, at that time. Now, if chapter 11 ends in the first century, and uh, chapter 12 begins at that time, chapter 12 has to be occurring in the first century as well, which I believe it does. So, you look at uh, chapter 12, verse 1 begins with a summary statement of what would be happening during the last days of the Old Covenant. And it's a 40-year span, or if you want to start with the birth of Christ, verse 45 of chapter 11, it would be a 70-year span. It says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And that probably started, according to Revelation 12, right at the birth of Christ, so maybe a 70-year span. And then it goes to the end of that period. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. So this is the summary statement. This whole period from Christ's birth up to the Great Tribulation, which occurs from 66 A.D. through 73 A.D., exactly seven years and exactly smack dab in the middle of that seven years, the temple was burned, sacrifice and oblation were destroyed. So this is the summary statement. Then he goes back and he starts over at uh, the... Uh, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. It was at the cross that Jesus said it is finished, that His atonement, that His ransom was given and He paid it all. It is finished actually to telestai means the debt is paid. And so on the cross, uh, all of the elect are delivered and the next event after redemption is resurrection. So verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. Now I want you to notice it doesn't say all are going to be raised. It says many are going to be raised. At the end of time, all who are left in the graves are going to be raised. But here it's just many. And it's almost verbatim quoted in Matthew chapter 27, the first scripture uh, that we talked about. So that's the first resurrection. Now let me look at just two more passages where Christ gives the standard Jewish Pharisaic two resurrection interpretation. John chapter 5 and verse 25. 
speaks of two resurrections. One will be soon, one will be far distant. And there's other New Testament passages we could look at, but we'll just um, give, give a couple here. John 5.25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming. That's future. I think that's a, the reference to a resurrection at the end of the history. But notice the change from future to present tense. The hour is coming, that's future, and now is. So there's a future hour, there's a present hour. The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So I believe it's talking about two resurrections, two hours, one distant, one is about to happen. Revelation 20 is the last one. It speaks of a first resurrection before the time of the kingdom of Messiah and a second resurrection when the kingdom is ended and it's handed over to the Father. Scripture only knows of two resurrections, uh, one at the end of history, one at the time of Christ's first coming. That was standard Pharisaic interpretation of Scripture. That's Paul's interpretation of Scripture. It's my interpretation of Scripture. Uh, uh, to me, it's just post-millennialism, right? Well, if Paul's doctrine of the resurrection is the same as the Pharisees, this is revolutionary in a number of fronts. It not only settles the question of all-male, pre-male, post-male, it also settles the question of full preterism. Full preterists deny a literal, physical resurrection of our bodies. They say, oh yeah, 70 AD, that's when the final resurrection happened. That's when heaven and earth passed away. And uh, I think, wow, that's, that's pretty strange. And so we're not going to get these bodies back. It's a spiritual uh, resurrection or body. Uh, and so they deny literal resurrection of bodies. Well, Paul's affirming the Pharisaic interpretation of resurrection, and they very clearly say there's a literal resurrection of our bodies. Now, certainly, our bodies are going to be much different than our present ones. They're going to be glorified. They're going to be as different as an oak tree is different from the acorn that's planted in the ground, but there's a connection between the acorn and the oak tree, right? So, basically, if Paul's agreeing with the Pharisees on resurrection, full preterism is wrong. Just flat out that simple. Now, let's go through quickly the rest of the passage. It's no wonder to me that simply making that statement caused a huge uproar in the assembly. Paul is not trying to compromise. He's throwing a spiritual grenade into that group. Verse 7 says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. It suddenly, I think, dawned on at least some of these scribes and Pharisees that the real issue, the defining issue between the Sadducees and them was indeed the resurrection. It explained why the Sadducees wanted the support of Rome and the Pharisees hated Rome. It explained to them why the Sadducees would never accept the future Messiah because it would jeopardize their power that was given to them by Rome. The Sadducee in denial of the supernatural, a coming Messiah, resurrection, angel, demons. It was all a total denial of the Pharisaic worldview that there is a coming Messiah, a coming kingdom, coming resurrection, and the eventual triumph of God's law in every uh, part of this world. And so the pieces are falling together in the minds of at least some of these Pharisees, and it divided them. Truth divides. Truth always divides. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Without the supernatural to defend you and to appeal to, what do the Sadducees have left to appeal to? They appeal to Rome. They, they, they engage in power religion. 
Uh, without a belief in the afterlife, you're not too concerned about God's judgment because they believed once we die, that's all there is, ashes, you know. Our bodies will crumble. So you're not going to be too concerned about God judging you for your actions, which explains why the Sadducees were way more corrupt than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees at least were worried that they were going to be judged for their, for their actions. And so uh, th- this was a, uh, a doctrine that really did uh, uh, divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in, 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 in many, many issues. Now, when we get to Roman number two, I'm just going to give a very, very quick outline of other practical ramifications of the resurrection. Now, look at verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested. So what Paul has managed to do is he's managed to get these Pharisees to realize, look, we're not going to be the only ones who are going to lose on this culture war. If we get in trouble, you Pharisees are going to lose in these culture wars as well. Um, He got them finally to protest Ananias' tyranny. Now, we looked at the tyranny of the court last week. I'm not going to review anything we said uh, last week. But it's interesting that until Paul could demonstrate and show that Ananias was a threat to them as well, they weren't willing to get on board. They weren't willing uh, to protest. And so it wasn't as if Paul's being a co-belligerent with them. He's convincing them they need to become co-belligerents with him. And that's what we need to do with pagans in our own day. We need to help them to see, look, our worldview is for your own good. You ought to love this kind of stuff. This is what Chuck Colson has tried to do with at least a few biblical laws. Uh, He's even gone to other countries and he said, look at the beauty of the way that the Hebrews did things. Uh, He says, you really ought not to have prisons. And he, he, he says, prison reform is going to help the country as a whole. It's going to help those who have been stolen from, you know, their restitution, and it's going to bring healing to the, the, the culture as a whole. It's going to be restorative to the criminals. So in some ways, what he's trying to do is he's saying, look, these biblical laws are great. Uh, you ought to adopt these. Now, I wish he preached all of biblical law. He doesn't. But biblical law, biblical scriptures are beautiful. They're practical. And when I talk with pagans, I'm always trying to see, get them to see the beauty of God's Word, how practical, how relevant it is uh, to them. Romans 11 says that unbelievers ought to come to the place when they see it being lived out in our lives that they become jealous of the gospel. There really isn't a lot for people to be jealous about in Washington, D.C. Oh, I wish I could be like Washington, D.C. No, uh, that's as ugly as Ananias was. And so this is a wonderful time in which a biblical worldview ought to shine brightly. It ought to be something that's a standard that people say, hey, I've never seen that before. I really want what the Christians have. Let's try it. But if we're not putting it to the fore, people are not even going to try it. So verse 9 is getting them to protest corruption. And there's plenty of corruption we protest that I think pagans would be happy to protest as well. It goes on to record their protest. We find no evil in this man. Now, <laughs> that, that one really makes me puzzled because that's a rather quick change on their part, but this happens many times. We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, Paul hadn't said that an angel or a spirit had spoken to him. He made it quite clear in his previous speech it was Jesus himself who had spoken to Paul. 
And so it's clear here the Pharisees haven't completely bought into what Paul is, uh, is saying, uh, but they at least recognize the Sadducees can no longer be their friends. Now, this does highlight, I think, an important point when we're being co-belligerents. Paul is not willing to be quiet about controversial doctrines so that he can build a temporary coalition. He boldly spoke uh, the gospel clearly to this, uh, this group in the previous chapter, and in the next chapter he does so again. In fact, he's so clear. Here's how Festus summarizes the whole situation to King Herod Agrippa in chapter 25 says, but had some questions about him, about their own religion, and about the certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. This is not incremental losing. This is incremental advancing. This is the difference, I think, between a compromising co-belligerence, which is unfaithful, is embarrassed by the Word of God, won't speak the Word of God, and a co-belligerence that is faithful and helps people to see, yeah, this is something we want to identify with. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was an enemy of the faith on many levels, but there were tons of things in the Bible that he loved, and he quoted the Bible, and he very vigorously defended uh, these, these truths. He was willing to be a co-belligerent with true believers. Paul was never willing to seek alliances with pagans, by accommodating himself to their position. The only co-belligerence that he's willing to engage in is calling pagans to some facet of biblical truth that both he and they see as being worth defending. And so it is incremental here. They accept that a resurrection has occurred, but they're not sure yet that Jesus uh, has spoken with, uh, uh, with Paul but it's really a situation where pagans are coming closer step by step to the truth rather than Paul stepping further and further away from the truth. And I see this as quite a difference from what Christians have been engaged in and their co-belligerence in the last 25 years. Uh, they have tried to make alliances that are compromising, have been keep, keeping their mouths shut about biblical law, and I think it's a counterfeit co-belligerence that has devastated the moral majority. Morality is not enough. The centrality of the source of that morality needs to at least be put forward even if they don't agree that Jesus is the source. Paul was quite clear about that. Now, you can disagree with this. That's fine. But it's at least some fodder for you to think about. Now, verse 10 makes the division so great that the Roman commander steps in. And to me, this introduces a different kind of co-belligerence. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Now, Paul has even less in common with the Romans than he did with the Pharisees. And yet Luke makes it quite clear that the Roman commander had vested interests in rescuing Paul. Uh, it says that the commander feared that Paul would be pulled to pieces. He feared something. Um, we don't know what it was that he feared for, for sure. You might wonder, why isn't he just glad to get Paul off his hands? Let him kill Paul. I don't want to have to mess with this anymore. He's not the Egyptian commander that I thought would bring me you know, a good raise in my salary. And so get rid of him. No, he feared that Paul would be pulled apart. I think what's going on here is he wants law and order because he might be dismissed from his post if there's not law and order. And it just happens on this occasion that the desire for law and order worked to Paul's advantage. 
Now, it might be questioned whether this is even a case of co-belligerence because Paul didn't ask to be rescued. But it really doesn't matter whether Paul asks or doesn't ask. There are other people who see, yeah, I need to defend the Christian cause. That's all it takes. And you can see this all through the Scripture. In the book of Ezra, Ezra has no problem accepting the co-belligerence of the pagan emperor in Ezra chapters 1, 5, 6, and 7. And there is one unsuccessful attempt to get the emperor's co-belligerence against the enemies there in Israel, and that's in chapter 4. He wasn't successful in being able to do that. But it was never a situation where the believer compromised his position. It was always a situation where they cast vision. They gave the pagan a reason why that pagan uh, should support the biblical principle. So not incremental loss. It's incrementally getting pagans to support the truth. And you can see the same thing in Nehemiah, Esther, and Daniel. I'm not going to say anything more on this. I just wanted to give you at least a little bit of information you could chew on and debate. And um, uh, hopefully it'll be fun uh, debating it. Now I want to look, I want to end by looking very, very briefly at how central the doctrine of the resurrection was to Paul. And I've listed some scriptures under point A of Roman numeral 2 showing that the resurrection is at the very heart of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Christ was not raised... Christianity is destroyed. It also says if we're not going to be raised in the future, Christianity is destroyed. It says it's absolutely critical. Full preterism is a heresy because it denies a resurrection at the end of history. In fact, it denies that there will be any end to history. We've already looked at the significance of the Pharisaic doctrine of two resurrections. Pre-mills put the First resurrection of Revelation 20 in the future, right before the last thousand years that's on your chart. That's where they put the first resurrection. You need to ask, okay, if that's the first resurrection, what was going on in the first century? That was a pretty massive resurrection, according to the Old Testament passages we looked at. So I believe the first resurrection is at the first century. The rest of the dead do not rise till the thousand years is finished. Revelation 20 is quite clear on that. So that makes a post-millennial resurrection. It makes a post or after millennial second coming. Now, Paul's statement in verse 6 makes it clear that the resurrection was very important to Paul. Here's what Charles Hodge says. The resurrection of Christ is not only asserted in the Scriptures, but it is also declared to be the fundamental truth of the Gospel. If Christ be not risen, says the Apostle, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. It may be safely asserted that the resurrection of Christ is at once the most important and the best authenticated fact in the history of the world. Let me end with nine reasons why that is true. If the first resurrection has happened already, means that the Pharisees have missed the beginning of the kingdom. They've missed uh, that uh, first resurrection. They've missed uh, the coming of the Messiah. In fact, they crucified their Messiah. And on their own theology, that means they're going to be judged by that Messiah unless they repent here very quickly. So it was a, 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 a very... Um, presuppositional argument. He's showing them that based on their hope, they've missed their hope. Secondly, the resurrection guaranteed that the incarnation would be forever. Now, why is that important? Well, we know that the incarnation was important for our salvation. Jesus had to come down. God the Son had to come down, become fully man in order for Him to be our substitute, in order to represent us to God. He had to be fully God to represent God uh, to us and so he had to be the God-man for us to be united uh, 
in salvation to him. So we all celebrate Christmas. We say that's a very important doctrine. What the doctrine of resurrection does is it says throughout all of eternity it's going to be essential that he be the God-man. He's always going to be God, always going to be fully a man as well. And this is why Greeks, who were not offended by the doctrine of the Incarnation, were very offended by the doctrine of the Resurrection. Uh, because it meant that God would be forever God in the flesh. And the Greeks wanted to escape from their flesh. And I've read some full preterist books who say, we want to escape from these bodies. Why would we want bodies? Uh, you know, they have a very Greek concept on that. Anyway, Greeks, they didn't have any problem with the idea that God might incarnate himself, come into the world. They had their own versions of incarnations, so to speak. But it was for the purpose of rescuing men from the physical. Okay? The doctrine of the resurrection was an offense to them. Let me give uh, just one sample interaction uh, with the pagans in Acts 17. The Athenian philosophers, they loved to have their ears tickled. They had uh, philosophies that they loved to listen to. And so they're willing to put up with his talk of knowing God, verses 22 through 23, that this God created all things out of nothing, verses 24 and following, of his omnipresence, verse 24, his providential control of all things, verse 25, his teaching. And these are all controversial, okay? His teaching that all men are created from one ancestor are not evolved, verses 26 and following. They believed in evolution. Of being made in the image of God, responsible to seek Him, verses 27 through 29. God's rejecting idolatry. They were idolaters, verse 29. Even His demand that they repent, verse 30, and a day of judgment, verse 31. But as soon as He mentions the resurrection, it's like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. Here, here's what they say. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This is why several heretics in church history, they accepted the incarnation. They absolutely rejected the bodily resurrection because the resurrection guarantees for all eternity that there will be a mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It guarantees that we have a representative. It guarantees our eternal salvation. First John says, if you deny that Christ is come in the flesh, it's a perfect tense. It's happened in the past and he continues to be in the flesh. He says, if you deny that, you're antichrist. That's how important it was to John. Okay, hurrying on. Romans 5.16 says that the resurrection guarantees our justification. 1 Corinthians 15.17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And it goes on to say it's critical to every part of our salvation. Christ had to be raised from the dead to be able to be our intercessor, our sympathizer. That's Romans 8.34. Acts 17.31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So he's saying Christ's resurrection guarantees a final judgment. It guarantees God is not going to put up with sin. The whole argument of 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ's resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. So he says, if Christ is not raised, we will not be raised. If you deny that we are raised, you're also denying that Christ is raised. They're all bound up together. Uh, you can't divide Christ's resurrection from our own like some full preterists do. Point seven, give scriptures that show how Christ's resurrection gives us hope that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. It's guaranteeing the progress of his kingdom that he's up there building his church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Point eight, give scriptures that show Christ's resurrection proves his sonship. Point nine, 
gives passages that prove that Christ's resurrection sets him on his throne and his exaltation over everything. I'm not going to go over those. I put them into your outline so that you could have further uh, study. But it's no wonder that Paul can say with absolute truthfulness concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. It was not a lie. The resurrection of Jesus, the saints with him, and our future resurrection are all part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. H.P. Lydon said, Faith in the resurrection is the very keystone of the arch of Christian faith, and when it is removed, all must inevitably crumble into ruin. B.B. Warfield said, Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as his single and sufficient credential. Josh McDowell said, The resurrection of Christ has always been categorically the central tenet of the church. And I would add the cross and the resurrection, because you really can't separate those two, are the central tenet. Now, if that's the case, we've got to understand the implications of the resurrection for our own lives, for our families. It is the point at which all of history changed. You see, we should not see the cross and the resurrection as starting another cycle, you know, of this miserable, never getting better kind of thing in history, you know, cyclical view, it reversed history. Everything was going down toward the cross and resurrection. Everything is advancing uh, forward. In fact, it gives us such hope that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that this one doctrine, this one doctrine will save us from a passive eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die philosophy. Why? He says, because it gives us a mindset that we can enthusiastically advance the cause of Christ knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. Everything will be placed under His feet. And next week, I hope to give a sermon on the radically transforming implications of the, of the resurrection. We're going to deviate from this passage and preach from Colossians. Uh, but uh, I believe this section gives me warrant for giving special emphasis to this marvelous doctrine. Uh, even though I've given you only a tiny glimpse of why this was an explosive doctrine. Uh, I hope it's been a glimpse, glimpse that's enabled you to say, Glory, hallelujah, amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the resurrection of Christ and all that it guarantees us. Thank you for the victory that you have promised. If you are for us, who can be against us? That uh, having given us the Son with Him, you freely give us all things. That Him being exalted to your right hand, you have seated us with Him in the heavenlies. Father, there are so many implications of this doctrine of the resurrection and His ascension. They give us hope and confidence and, and joy. And I pray that this, your people, would be a conquering, faithful people because they are gripped by the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.